So today's daf is Gimel in Shkalim. We are on the bottom of Bet Amud Bet, where we left off yesterday, which was uh, where it says Tanei Rabban Shabbat Magamliel, which is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. What is it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight lines from the bottom of the Amud. Tanei Rabban Shabbat Magamliel Omer. Uh, so this is actually really discussed in Masechet Megillah mainly, but the idea is that uh, any mitzvah that is done in the second Adar, we don't do it in the first one as well. In other words, even though they're both called Adar, so it could be confusing, but, uh, uh, but really the second Adar is the main one. We don't do them in the first, uh, in the first Adar, uh, except for but there's such a thing as Purim Katan, which basically we don't, uh, on the 14th and 15th of Adarishon, even though it's not, uh, even though it's not really adar for the purposes of any other mitzvah, everything else is deferred to uh, to adar sheni. But when it comes to hesped v'tanit, we don't have hespedim. We don't say eulogies and we don't fast on the fourteenth and fifteenth of adar rishon. Like our way of expressing that is, we don't say tachanun. Even though it's not really a holiday, but since it's the 14th, 15th of adar, it's adar rishon. We, we don't say tachanun on that day. Um, Rabbi Ba. Rabbi Yirmiyah, B'shem Rabbi Rav, right? Rabbi Simon, B'shem Rabbi Shoben Levi, right? So these all, these rabbis all reported halacha Rabban Shmuel Ben Gamliel. The halacha follows Rabban Shmuel Ben Gamliel that everything is in the second Adar, um, except the only thing that we observe in the first Adar is that we don't have hesped v'tanit, we don't have mourning and uh, or eulogies rather and fasting on the fourteenth and fifteenth of Adar Rishon. Rav Huna, Rabad Tziporin, Amar Hinhig. What is that? Uh, what is the Rishchet? What does it say? Oh, Rabbi Chanina. Okay, so it doesn't tell me names. Rabbi Chanina betziporin kadad Rabbi Shmuel Gamliel. So the the minhag was right. Lo amar elahinig hala halachalo. So he didn't officially say the halacha was like Rabbi Shmuel Gamliel. In other words, he wasn't teaching. The difference is that manhaga means that, that that's what they practiced lemaseh, but he didn't come out and rule like Rabban Shabbat Gamliel. Meaning he's he's leaving it open whether that's the halacha officially, uh, but he uh, but that was practically what they did. So in terms of Megillah, in terms of the parashiot, the special parashiot of Adar and so on, everything was done in the second Adar, not in the first. But he never announced it as halacha. He just said that was the custom. Now avalein yanshtarot. What about with respect to? Contracts that are written up, documents that are written up that have to reflect the date. So it says, Kotvin Adarishon, Vadarshini Stam. So in Adarishon, you write Adarishon. In the second Adar, you just write Adar. Why? Because that's basically the one that we treat as Adar. So Adarishon, you have to designate it was an Adarishon. Now, dates of ca- contracts, for obvious reasons, dates of documents are extremely important. Because <clears throat> if we don't know when, let's say, a particular asset, Tra- uh, changed ownership from one person to another, so we don't know who's, let's say, responsible for certain things, or whether it's uh, if the uh, if the item has lien on it uh, or or anything like that. We don't know. We have to know exactly when title was transferred or uh, when you know certain uh, obligations were entered into. Otherwise, we won't be able to enforce. Uh, we won't be able to enforce contracts, and we won't be able to hold people responsible for their behavior, and uh, and and not hold the wrong person responsible. So, it's very important. So uh, we have to be clear: was it an adar rishon or adar sheni? Now, obviously, the standardizing of it is the most important thing. But the question is, which one should we just call adar? Which one should we call adar? Rish- uh, you know, should we say adar sheni and just adar for adar rishon, or vice versa? So the first one I was saying, kotin adar rishon, but adar sheni stamp. The first one he wrote adar rishon. If you're writing a contract in Adar Rishon, you write Adar Rishon. If it's a, if it's Adar Sheni, you just write Adar. That's really the way we think of it because uh, practically speaking, Adar Sheni is the main one. Uh, Rabbi Udaumir, Adar Rishon, stop. Adar Sheni. Oh, I think it was Rabbi Yossi, right? Um, you, you what do you have? 
Oh, here, Rabbi Yehuda. Okay. Rabbi Yehuda says, Adar Rishon, stop. Adar Sheni, Tinyan. So he says, no, the other way around. That Adar Rishon, you just write Stam. You write without any name. Right? We don't, you just write Adar for Adar Rishon. And Adar Sheni, you write Tinyan. Tinyan is the Aramaic word for second. In other words, you write, this, you write that it's the second Adar. So according to him, according to Rabbi Yehuda, you make the first Adar the, just the name Adar. And the second one, you mention that it's, this, it's Adar Sheni. It's really a question of... The, when you have two months that are both called Adar, you know, instead of coming up with a more creative name for the uh, additional month, they just called it Adar also. So now it becomes confusing. You know, what do you consider? Which one do you call Adar? Which one do you call? Which one is the special Adar? Is it, is it that Adar Rishon is really Adar, but we defer the, uh, we defer the other mitzvot until the second month? Or is it that really Adar Rishon is an extra thing? It's like having an extra shvat, basically. But we, you know, and, and that really Adar Shein is a real Adar. So it's, it's a whole discussion in many ap- a- applications, talachab, bar mitzvahs, everything. Lots of problems that come from the Adar Sheni and Adar Rishon. Now, mitaknit adochim, vetochobot, vetmikvot hamayim, vosikot So we have to do all of these public works, basically, and Adar, they would go and they would, and now obviously it seems like, you know, in addition to the idea of the uh, new year coming up, basically, and the sun being a, a, a renewal time, it's also a time of better weather for doing, and, and you see even here, you know, when do all these uh, road work projects begin, uh, just about this time of year when the, the weather becomes more friendly to that. Now it says, Eloin Tzorcher Rabim. What are Tzorcher Rabim? It's very vague. What does it mean, the needs of the public? So, Danin Dine Mamonot. So, the courts had backlogs, and I guess it was difficult for people to travel and things like that during the wintry months. So, they started trying to judge all of the cases that were on the docket that they had not had a chance to uh, address with Dine Nefashot. Same with um, if capital cases that were waiting to be heard, Dine Makot, issues of basically where makot were involved, which would be usually religious violations, but not, not involving a death penalty. Similarly, if people made vows of erech that we learned about in Masachat Arachim, or charamim, which is another kind of a donation that a person makes consecrations, we would have to come evaluate and determine how much they owed and, uh, and, and have them pay. Vehekdeshot and other consecrations. So these are all done around this time. We start going around and finding out who made a vow of this or that, a donation commitment, and we start collecting. So if, there any, uh, if there's any sota who needs to be yet tr- brought to trial, we do that. There needs to be a paraduma, we do that. Similarly, if there were uh, eglah rufa, if there was any um, uh, unsolved murders that required eglah rufa, we do it around this time. If there's any eved ivri who has declared that he wants to stay permanently with his master, we, we puncture his ear at this time. If there's any mitzvah that's waiting online to become tahor again, we take care of it. And we, we unlock the reservoirs of water because now that it's going to be, uh, now, now we make the water available <coughs> that when they would lock it during the rainy season, I guess because there was plenty of water available to, for people to take, but now that it's getting to the time where uh, they, they're going to need to rely on the collected water, so they unlock the water for people to take. We don't put it back really until the rainy season begins again later in the year in the fall. We learned in Masechet Moed Katan, Mashkin Bet the very beginning of Masechet Moed Katan, right, that we, we are, uh, that we can water fields on Cholam Moed that require watering um, and so on. And we can also make, um, we can designate Kvarot. And the Mitzayinin means that they would put lime 
on the air on the place where the person was uh, was buried. Okay, so So the question is a very logical question because in Masechet here in Masechet Shkalim, which is before Masechet Moikatan, right? So we said that in Adar they go and they make the they make sure that all of the graves are designated. But then you said that on Cholamoid they're doing that. So why are they doing Cholamoid? They already did it in Adar. So it says, The answer is that, look, the lime that they poured on there could easily have been washed away in the meantime. In other words, if they were, they, true that they went out in order to designate all the areas of the graves prior to uh, Nisan and the Nadar. But the thing is that if there was a rainstorm in between or something, and since they were just using lime to, uh, you know, to pour on the, in the, on the area so it could be washed away, they would need to go and do it again. So that would just be situational if it was necessary. If it was, it, if it were not necessary in one case, they wouldn't do it. So we got in right? So it also said that they go out for the kilaim. They also go out to see if there are any um, kilaim growing, any mixed seeds growing. It said that they do that also during cholamoid. So why would they do it during cholamoid? That's not a time to do that. So it says lok Didn't they already go out? So it says The answer is that some years. Things grow later than others. It was a year that, you know, that we're behind, that maybe the Hebrew calendar is behind the solar calendar, like it's going to be in the follow next year, really. If it's behind the solar calendar, so that means that the growth is going to be later in the season. So by Adar, there might not, you might not notice the uh, things that are growing that aren't supposed to be growing. So they had to wait till Nisan to go and investigate that. Now, Minayin Litziyun, how do we know that, uh, that you should mark graves? Okay, how do we, where's the source of marking graves? Do you ever see anything in the Torah about graves or marking of graves? All I remember is, That's, you know, they don't know where Moshe Rabbeinu was buried. And we know about the Avot, that they have Marata and things like that. And they have where, but there's never anything that talks about burial, making a, uh, making a stone or making any other kind of memorial or indication of the person being laid to rest there. Now in Halakha, it's a very, Unromantic reason for the uh, for we think of it as very sentimental. We have put a stone and, and and the person's name and to remember them, and we put you know maybe some pasuk or maybe something about them, right? They didn't have that idea. They just had one concern, which was tumah. They don't want the kohen or the other holy things to cross by an area where there was tum'ah without realizing it. So the tziyun is really a marker to warn a person not to go there if they have anything that they don't want to become tamay. Okay? Now it says... Well, how did yeah. he just, does it the whole thing? It's going to explain that. We didn't get up to that yet. So the, it, it's not going to leave you in suspense, suspense for too long. Yeah. They had some. They, no, they had betakvarot. They had betakvarot. But they would sometimes bury people in places that you would not expect. Like they didn't only have betakvarot. Like let's say in America, or probably in most countries today, I would assume, there are laws. You can't just bury somebody in your backyard. You can't, you're not allowed to. Right, but some people, you know, back then, you somebody passed away, they bury them on the field. They bury them, and uh, you know, they would bury them. They found a dead body. They bury them on the side of the road, right where they were. Mitzvah. They didn't take them. Um, in the I, I, where I grew up on in, in Long Island, further out on Long Island. Okay, there's like a um, I forget what it is. I think it's like a TJ Maxx or something. There's some like department store strip of department stores, and in the middle of the parking lot, there's a cemetery. Like, it, like in the middle of the parking lot, there's a little area that is like cordoned off. And it was like a Native American cemetery. Oh. 
or something like that, or a very old cemetery. Like yeah. Like so, yeah, so they left it there, and they kept it, and that's in the middle of the parking lot. So, you know, that was probably there, you know, because they, this, the land was bought. Right, the cemetery, Pro- I mean, the cemetery was there first. Probably. Right, but I'm saying back, the point is that back then, especially, what was considered, they didn't necessarily only bury in Beit Kvarot, right? So now it says, Rabbi Berachia, Rabbi Yaakov, Bar Bat Yaakov, Beshem Rabbi Chonya de Berat Chavrin. So it's going to give us different attributions. So Rabbi Berachia uh, um, said this in the name of Rabbi Yaakov, Bar Bat Yaakov, in the name of Rabbi Chonya, Rabbi Yosa Amreila, Rabbi Yaakov Bar Acha, Beshem Rabbi Chonya de Berat Chavrin. They all have it from the same place, and and from Rabbi Chonya again from uh, from Berat Chavrin, but in different the name of a different rabbi. Chizkia. Rabbi Uziel, brother of Chonya, the Beit Chavrin. And he says that it that was Rabbi Uziel, so Rabbi Chizkiah said it was Rabbi Uziel, the son of Rabbi Chonya, from Beit Chavrin, which is, I'm not sure if that's a typo, meaning that could be a manuscript issue. It's really Brat Chavrin also, or it's a different place. But either way, three different attributions here, okay? Who said this? But the main point is, that we read about, the person who is a mitzvah that vitameta meikra he calls out to anybody who comes near I am tamei right he says tameta meikra so it says kedei shetei tumah korah lecha befiya veomer dechaprosh in other words what is it saying it's saying that the tumah should call out to you and say tell you to go away so just like we have the mitzvah it says that the mitzvah who is sitting outside the camp right. That he has to say whenever somebody comes near, Tame, Tame. He should say, Don't come near, I'm Tame, I'm Tame. So you see from that that we need to broadcast when there's a source of Tum'at to keep you separated from it. And so that's why we put the, uh, that's why we put the Tziu and that's why we put the grave marker. Okay? It's going to get to what the grave marker is in a second. Rabbi Ilam, Bishem Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman. So the, uh, he quotes the Pasuk, So this is actually from Sefer Yechezkel, talking about the war of Gog and Magog. So it says the people will pass by, and they will see the bones of a person, and they will build next to it a tziyun. They will build next to it a, um, a, a marker, something to indicate that there, was a, there were bones there. Now, what do you see from that? Etzem, from the fact that it says bone, mikan, So you see that even if there are bones, at least enough bones to create tumat ohel, right? Enough bones that it would, would, it would which means like either the, you know, a, a, a significant portion of the, of the body or like uh, the spine and, and, and the most of the atzamot, or rova kav, if there's a, a quarter of a kav of atzamot, whatever it is that you would need to create tum'ah. So, uh, because, so, so you see from that, uh, and what about the word adam? If you have the spine and the skull, you also would put a marker. In other words, if you know that's buried, there are a significant amount of bones, or if significant bones, not quantitative, but qualitative, like a skull and a uh, spine, Ubana, and it says you build there at Zion, you build there a marker, al Even You put an Even you put a fixed stone, a stone that's fixed into the ground. So this is your question. They put a stone. Okay? Im Omer if you Im because if you tell me it should be a disconnected stone, then it's going to spread the tumah to other places. Right? So the point is that the tumah is it needs to be something which is fixed in place. It's not going to move around because if it moves around, then it could carry hypothetically the tum'ah to um, 
with it elsewhere. So therefore, we don't we don't want that to uh, because it could uh, because the not because the stone will become tamei because stone can't actually become tamei because it's not mekabel tumah. But it means that it will move, and then if the stone moves, then what's the point of putting it tzium? Because somebody else will go and become tamei in the place where the tumah actually is. In other words, if you if you don't put a fixed stone, so then it's going to be very confusing. The tumah will, so to speak, spread not literally because the rock can't actually become tamei. What it means, the rock will move, and then a person will go to the place that they think doesn't have a grave, and really that's where the grave is. And, and they'll be confused. Okay, so that's why we put a fixed one. Okay, so that's an etzlo. It says in the pasuk in Yecheskel that, that, that the marker will be next to the thing. Right? Lemakom tara, which is very interesting. It says that it should be in a pure place. In other words, the stone itself, should, where the stone is sitting, should not be directly over the grave, it sounds like, according to this. Right? It should be in an area that's still tahor to block you from going to the place that is tamay. It should be like almost a warning marker, the way that it sounds like how it's presented in, um, in Yerushalmi. The way that we do it is a little bit different than that. But, um, but you see, it doesn't say, like, the, like here you say the Korbana Aida, the commentary says, he says, it doesn't say Ubana Alav Tziun. It doesn't say build the rock, put the rock over it. Right, because then by the time you're hang, by the time you're up to it, you're already over the uh, you're already over the uh, the tumah. So we don't want that. We want it to be in ahead of it, so that you'll come up to this marker and you'll realize that there is something that's right past the marker is where the tumah is supposed to be. So it's supposed to be a warning sign, right? Siyun. Um, what what that means is mikan siyun. So from that's where that's where you see that there is such a concept of having. Um, a some kind of a sign to warn people to stay away from the tumah. If you find one rock which has a sign on it, in other words, which has a what, the indicator that it is a, um, a for a body, like that they put something on it that indicates that it is for uh, for tumatmet. So if you see that there is an indication. Um, on that rock. In other words, you don't just put a rock there and you think somebody's going to figure out what it is. There has to be something there that shows what, what it's supposed to be, right? So if you see something like that, even though you're not supposed to do that, according to the Shalmi, you're not supposed to use only one rock or to, to mark a, a grave. Even though you're not supposed to say, you have to, you, you, you shouldn't, if you lean over it, you're going to be Tamei. Because it could be that the dead body is right under the rock. In other words, even though according to the Shalmi, you're not supposed to put the rock right over the dead body. You're supposed to put a little bit ahead. Still, if you see it there, you have to assume that even hanging over the dead, that even hanging over the rock, it could be that the body is below. Right? And it says, But if there are two rocks there that obviously are making a memorial, so the assumption is that what's in between the rocks is really where the Tum'ah is. And then, But if there was a, uh, like something plowed in between, so then obviously they're not connected to each other, so then, Then they're like individuals and then around those rocks is going to be tamay, but in between them will be okay. And now the, the idea is that, I mean, the way that we do it now is that we have an uh, elevated thing. So by the time you, you wouldn't be able to like walk over the, you know, walk over it. The way that we have the stone, right? You wouldn't be able to like, uh, to by the, you walk up to it and you see that there's a grave there. So it's not something that you... Uh, you know, that you would, uh, it, it wouldn't, it doesn't really work as a deterrent because the place where we put the stone is here, is by the head. And the body is, you know, extends beyond that. But that's why a lot of people, they put those flat stones that it covers the entire grave. So that way, you know, the entire area. But then for sure, even though the body is under that, there's no concern that the person is going to trip over that and they're going to b- go over the tumah because they're going to see it. 
they're talking about a much smaller type of thing, obviously. So if it's not in front of where the uh, Tumah is, it's not going to be a good warning. It's interesting that the way that we do it, though, is we put it by the head, which is the opposite. Really, you would think that it would be the other way. It would be before you reach the body that you would put it, according to this. But, you know, we don't actually follow the way that it describes the Tziyun here. And, so, and Shem <coughs> Graves in Yerushalayim was so uh, stone that they put it like this. Yeah. And, and, and they don't know, is, as you say, it's on the head? Or, or it's, it's front or back, yeah. They don't know. Like yeah. Like yeah, it's up. I've ground. seen it, yeah. Right, yeah. I've seen it, yeah. If there's just some flesh from a dead body, we don't place a uh, marker there. What's the, and the reason is because since that flesh is going to nitakil, it's going to become, uh, it's going to disintegrate. So, and there was, no, there was nothing else. There were no bones or anything else. So it would be a source of tumah, only a little bit of flesh. According to the Talmud Bavli, that means only up to a certain amount. But uh, if there was a lot, then even that, you would put a marker. But if there was a little flesh in a certain spot, you wouldn't. Why? Because people will think that 10 years later, it's still a source of tumah. And it's not a source of tumah anymore. So the uh, so Rabbi Yusta Bar Shunem Ba'a Kume Rabbi Mana. Rabbi Yusta Bar Shunem asked, won't this cause a problem because a person will go over this spot not realizing that there is some flesh of a dead body in that area because he didn't put a marker and he's actually going to get things that are going to become tamay because of that so why don't we put something there why do, why do we just leave it and he said to him that's an interesting perspective he says oh look if we put a marker right now then it's going to stay there. So what's going to happen is that people are going to, th- that right now, you're right, in the short term, it's a benefit. But in the long term, it's going to cause people to think there's a tum'ah there for uh, 10 years when really it's only for a day or two. And you're, you know, you're going to mislead people. So it's interesting. I guess there was no temporary solution that they could put and then remove it because, you know, why wouldn't they do that? that that's not clear. But he said, it's, a, it's worse to, uh, don't think of only the short term. You've got to think of the long term. Now, um, the next Mishnah says, Amr Rabbi Yehuda, Barishona, hayu okrinu so there were three stages that they dealt with the people had kilaim in their fields. In the beginning, they used to pull out the kilaim, the mixed seeds. Let's say a person had a wheat field and growing in it was some other diverse seed. They would pull it out and they would throw it into the field itself. Later on, when there were lots of lots of people who were not following the rules, they would throw it into the street. Finally, they said, you know what? If we catch you with this, we're going to say your entire field is hefker and everybody can come and take whatever they want. Right? So why did they do that? It's going to explain. They used to throw it onto the field itself. They would come pull it out and throw it like you are, we're going to embarrass you. How could you have this? They were very happy. First of all, you're giving me a good landscaping service because you came in and you pulled all the weeds out and you put it in. Thank you very much. They got to benefit from it because now it's sitting right there. They'll take it. Right, you pulled it out for me and you put it down, so I'm going to take it. So then, what do they do? So they threw it into the street. They were still happy. They still got landscaping for free. That's a good. That's a good benefit. But then, so that's why the rabbi said any uh, any field that we find that they didn't remove the kilaim in time, we're going to say the whole thing is hefker and anybody can come take it. And then they started behaving because they didn't want to lose their entire field. Now, how do you have the concept of hefker that the betdin can take away your money? The betdin has the ability to pronounce your object ownerless. 
called everybody, he summoned everybody to a, uh, like a Din Torah type of situation where he was going to make them, uh, all the, the guys who came from the, uh, from Bavel who were intermarried. He wanted them all to, uh, the intermarried guys to get divorced from their non-Jewish wives and send away their non-Jewish wives. He said, I'm one who doesn't come in three days. Anybody who doesn't come, all of his property will be confiscated and he will be separated from the community of the Gola, meaning the community of returnees. So what do you see from that? He could declare all of their money confiscated. So he had power over their money. So that shows you that the Bedin, the official Bedin, has power over people's money. Okay, minayin sheep to ramen Well, not only that, but hefker things could be patur from maaser, meaning once something is hefker, if you take it, you don't have to pay taxes on it. Why? Because Rabbi Yonatan, by the Rabbi Yitzchak, bar acha, shamala min hadai. You can learn it from the following thing. Rabbi Yonatan, the son of Rabbi Yitzchak, bar acha, said, from this, en malbirat ashana lo bashvit lo mamotay shvit. We cannot extend the year in a shvit or mamotay shvit, which means you can't make a shana meoberet in the seventh year, in the Shemitah year. And the reason why is because during the Shemitah year, they had already, they were subsisting on very limited food, whatever grew naturally, because, you know, and, and therefore, and they weren't really allowed to do any, you know, commercial, uh, agricultural uh, work. So therefore, they didn't want to extend that any more than necessary, so you can't make a shana meoberet then. And, of course, the following year, too, they're going to be uh, limited because um, since in the Shemitah year, they weren't able to do anything and plant and things like that, so the next year they're also going to be limited and extending it is going to cause hardship on everybody so you shouldn't do that also they won't have like the korban haomer they won't have barley uh, if they if they make it if you know if they make things too late since the people are eating whatever they can find so they're going to extend they're going to extend the prohibition of chadash another month, right? Which uh, all the way, Pesach is going to be later. It's just going to cause like all kinds of difficulties for the people. Now, so therefore they didn't do it. But if they did happen to add to the to that year, it will work. Meaning they're not supposed to. They're not supposed to add to the Shemitah year an extra month. But if they did, it will it will be effective. Now, what does that show you? Right? Isn't it true that that month is patur from Maaser? Because all of the things that you collect during Shemitah, it's considered hefker. It's considered ownerless, right? Whatever you collect from the fields during during Shemitah. So you don't give true you don't give Truman Maser from the uh, from the Shvi'it. So what does that show you? So that you see that they had the power to declare some basically what the rabbis are doing by extending the Shemitah is they're basically making everything have care for another month and exempting it from Maser. So you see the power of the Betin that they have over people's money. Ad Kadun We understand Shvi'it, right? Why you can't extend it. But why did they? Uh, why did they prohibit Motzei Shvi'it? Amar Rebbe Abun. It says right. That's what the right. Abun Rebbe Bon is Rebbe Bon. Also, there are that two different girsaot. I can't tell. Oh, it's here. I can't tell. Yeah, because Rebbe Bon is somebody and Rebbe Abun is somebody. Okay. Shelolir Rovel Bisur Chadash. The main point is Shelolir Rovel Bisur Chadash. They didn't want to extend the prohibition of Chadash another month because, as it was, people were subsisting over very limited food, and if they can't eat the new grain for another month, then they can't. Then it's going to limit them even more in what they're able to eat. Rebbe Zeiram because they're basically subsisting on food from two years ago. So it's going to be very hard. Rebbe Rebbe Zeiram B'Shem Rebbe Lazar Hadad Atamar Ad Shelohitir. That was only when you weren't allowed to import vegetables, right? 
uh, from outside of Israel. But now that you're allowed to, and be allowed everyone to import uh, vegetables from Chutzah Aretz, right? He should be eating shell Once once you were allowed to import produce from outside, so then it became like any other year. Meaning, it wouldn't be any different if they extend the shemitah since they're anyway allowed to go and obtain produce from other lands. Saying that, shemitah year is not. It's not an extra darmitz. Of course, it must be. It is. Is it shemitah next year already? I thought we just had one. Fifteen was the last one, right? So then it will be twenty-two. Will be coming up. Yeah, next year. It's next year or it's at the end of the year? Oh, maybe it's the following. It might be the following year. It might be the following Hebrew year, though. Yeah. So, um, but it says, anyway, they can because they were allowed to import. So they changed the rule. Now, now, in other words, the idea is that that was only in the times where, uh, where the years were good. In other words, where things were ripening in their proper time. But now that the, the seasons, they had climate change. They're talking about, right? Yeah. Now, that, now that the years are not as good as they once were, things are growing slowly. They're not coming, so, so we have to sometimes delay no matter what, whether we like it or not. In other words, just for practical reasons, we have to delay. We have to add an extra month. Regardless... Um, and in fact, in the times of Rabban Gamliel, they did. They made a they made an, an extra month in the in the uh, year after the shemitah. Now, Am Rabbi Abun En Minhada Let That your proof doesn't prove anything. Meaning, you wanted to prove that what the bet din can can basically confiscate your property, make it hefker, and then it's exempt from maser, right? But he said, that's not really a power of the Bet Din that you're talking about, because that's actually sanctioned by the Torah itself. So, because why? Right? So, so he said that the answer is that, um, that that's something the Torah mandates, that if the calendar is off, is out of sync, because a solar calendar, we're behind the solar calendar, or we're ahead of it, really, right, in our months, so we need to add a month so that we get back into sync with the solar calendar, that's based on the Torah. So the Torah is telling you to add an extra month, and the Torah is telling you that, you're, that the produce is going to have another month that it is also hefker and it is also exempt from Masin. That's not the Bet Din making up its own thing. That's different than, than the Bet Din making up its own declaration that something is hefker and even exempting it from Maser, taking that, that hefker so seriously that you exempt those items from Maser is going very far. Right, that's not the, uh, that you can't prove because the Torah sanctions that. So therefore what? So therefore, but however, but from here you could say it because it says that, let's say a person has leket. Leket is the, the various, uh, as they are uh, harvesting, the gleanings that fall off on the side that they leave for the poor people, the leket. Now, let's say what happens is you piled up your grain on top of that. So now the poor people, they never got to collect it. So now it's under there. So you disadvantage the poor people because they were supposed to be able to come and pick up all of the stray things that were lying on the ground. And instead you covered it with your pile. So what do we do? So it says that the anim, everything touching the ground belongs to the anim because maybe it was the leket. In other words, that was the, the rabbi said, even though obviously it wasn't all the leket, but since this guy did that, so we're going to say, now everything belongs to the poor people. So if I'm Rabbi Amin, Rabbi Amin said, That must be Beit Shammai. Why? Because Beit Shammai is the one who says that a person can make things hefker only for the poor. He can say this is hefker, but only for the poor. 
So the guy says it's hefker, but only for the poor. Nobody else is allowed to come take it, but the poor people are allowed to, and therefore they don't have to take ma'asir from it because um, it's really considered hefker, but only for them, not for anybody else. Right? According to Beit Hillel, you can't make something hefker only for one group of people. So even though you could say that it belongs to the Anim, because if it's going to be Beit Hillel, then they have to also take Maser from it because he couldn't really make it hefker. He could say, I'm giving it to the poor people, but he can't say it's hefker because he would, if he says it's hefker, then even a rich person could come take it. It won't belong only to the poor people. But then we said, We learned that, you know, no, they don't have to take Maser. Why? Why? Because the rabbis made a knas, they made a penalty on the owner for piling his grain on the leket without allowing the poor people to come, and they said it's hefker. They didn't just say it's hefker for anim; they actually said it's completely hefker, even according to the even according to the uh, uh, to, to the rabbis, even according to Beitilel. So, therefore, the entire thing is is really the bottom layer of that pile is going to be hefker and is exempt from maser. And you see that the rabbis were able to exempt something from maser, not just to make it hefker, but even exempted from a biblical commandment of maser from that. Uh, from that case. So there we have a proof. Now, the next Mishnah says, on the 15th day of Adar, they would put the tables out in the Medina, and meaning either throughout Jerusalem or, the, or maybe even throughout other communities. They would do it because they were doing it to collect the Shkalim. That was in the beginning, of, in the middle of the month. On the 15th of the month, they would start taking the Shkalim, right? That's when they actually, because on the 1st of the month, they announced it, and the 15th start collecting. When it came to the 25th of Adar already, they came to the Beit HaMikdash, and then things get serious. Then they start demanding it from people. In other words, up to the they were being nice for the first most of the month. You know, the first of the month they give announcement. Please bring it. Fifteenth, they put tables out. You see that they're waiting for. They put it in the out in the community. You see the guy sitting with the tables. Please bring your shkalim. Then they start bringing it to the Beit Hamikdash. The uh, the tables, and then you know. Then they start knocking on the door and saying, "If you don't have the machetita shekel, I'm going to take your." Your kiddush cup. I'm going to take your this. I would take it. The mashkin means they would start taking collateral to get people to pay it. Right. So that's what they would start to do. Um, at me, me mashkinin. Who did they take collateral from? The vegirim. Um, Levites and, and Israelites, Vikirim, the converts, Avadim, slaves and Meshucharim, if they were freed slaves, right? But not women, not slaves that were actually enslaved, and not children. And if a father starts to give the shekel for his son every year, the machzita shekel, decides to do it, even though the son is young and he's under the age, he could say the father should continue. Right? And we don't force the Kohanim to give Machatzit shekel because we want to be nice to them. Now, some say it's because Kohanim have a bad temper. Right? And we don't want to, get, we don't want to mess with them, basically. Right? That's what, that's what some of the Varshim actually say that. I didn't say it. Right? Now, what's the idea? Or it could be out of respect for their office. Like, you don't come in to somebody who's a, considered a, you know, to be a, I don't know, a, a quote unquote a priest. I mean, it's a bad language because we have a we have a different association with it. But meaning somebody who has a religious function, you come and start demanding, you know, give me a mashkon, give me this. We, we don't want to demand, you know, collateral from them. It's it's too high handed. But I, there is an actual interesting machlokat bishonim about what age you have to give machetita shekel because the Rambam says even though in the Torah it says uh, you know from twenty years up, for the, the the mitzvah for generations is actually thirteen, like every other mitzvah. From 13 and up, the Rambam says. But, many, but other Rishonim disagree and say, no, just like the Torah says, Esraim, 20 years, also the, uh, the, also the Halakha is, is 20 years. But anyway, it, the question is, Amr uh, any Kohen that gives the Machatzit shekel is not sinning, meaning it's optional. He doesn't have to do it, but he's not, uh, but, but he, he, he's welcome to. Amr Lo Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakai. 
Loki, that's not right. It's opposite. Any coin that doesn't give is sinning, meaning you have to give. Right? So one opinion is saying it's optional. One opinion is saying it's obligatory. The, the Kohanim came up with a drasha to exempt themselves from the payments. Okay? How so? Because Very good argument. They said, look, if we Kohanim, what does the Torah say? Any mincha that's given by a Kohen. If a Kohen brings a mincha, what normally happens when a person brings a mincha is that only a handful goes on the altar and the rest of it is eaten by the Kohanim. But if a Kohen brings one, it's totally burnt. Right? That might be in this week's parasha, actually. Right? In Tzav, I think it is. No? So the... So the, the um, uh, so once you get, once you put that on, once the uh, handfuls from the altar, the rest is eaten by the Kohanim, except for the Kohen himself who brings it. So the Kohanim said, if we give machatzit shekel, right? So what happens? We own a portion of all of the korbanot. Now that's okay for every other korban, but it's not okay for the minachot, for the flower korbanot. Most communal korbanot are called minchat nesachim, they're burnt anyway. But the one, but, but the omer, which is supposed to be eaten by the Kohanim, Right? The, uh, the Lechem Apanim, supposed to be eaten by the Kohanim, the, the Shober. So if we own part of it, then it becomes Minchat Kohen, it becomes a flower offering Kohen, and then we won't be able to eat it. So obviously we are exempt from this payment, right? That's, uh, that's what they said. So the, the Kohanim had their own opinion. Ben Bukhri said it's optional for them, and Rabban Yochamit like I said, what are you talking about? Of course you have to pay. Right? So Gemara says, in Mashkinitaktanim, we don't take collateral from the children to force them to give um to give Machit Shekel. Halit Batov in. So that implies that you're allowed to demand it from them, even though they're Ktanim. Hadad the Temarab Bishhevi Shte Sarot. Aval imlo evi shte sarot lo bada. Meaning a katan here, we're talking about if he had two pubic hairs, meaning to say that he's bar mitzvah already. Bar mitzvah kid, we 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 ask it, that supports the Ram. Actually, right? That we, we require it from him. And really, it should say until he reaches 20 years, probably, right? I, I think the correct Yersa is that the Gra has that's what the Gra has. That until he's 20, right? We don't, require, we don't start confiscating his property to force him to give it until he's 20. So that supports the Rambam very clearly that the Katan has to give from 13 years old, but we don't force him, meaning we don't use. Aggressive tactics to, to, to confiscate his property. And uh, what our Mishnah tells us is that we don't take collateral from the Kohanim because of Dercha Kavod. We want to respect them. We don't want to get in any fights with them, um, either because they tend to be uh, uh, argumentative or because, uh, or because we don't want to disrespect their office. Where did Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai get the idea that Kohanim have to give the Machatzit Shekel? Because it says Zeh Ze is 12, right? Zeh Zayin is, is 7. Hey, is five, that's twelve, it's Gematria there, right? Yud Bechvatim Yitnu, all twelve tribes have to give. Rabbi Tavi Bishem Ravham Nuna, Ken Meshivin Chachamim, Rabbi Yehuda, this is what, what the rabbis responded to Rabbi Yehuda, because Rabbi Yehuda uh, was the one who said that it's, a, it's optional, right? So it says, Chatat Yachid Meta, En Chatat Tzibur Meta. Right, minchata yechid kalil minchata kalil. There are differences between individual korbanot and the korbanot of the community. Korban of an individual, if he if he has a chatat and then he loses it and he brings another one in its place, we have to leave the first one to die. There's nothing we can do with it. It's obsolete. But we don't apply those rules to to a chatat of a tzibur. The communal chatat, we don't apply that. We don't leave it to die. So there's different rules. Similarly, just because an individual kohen who brings a minchat has to be burnt doesn't mean if a kohen owns part of a minchat that it's going to have to be burnt. 
right? So vikashya mishivin laadam the barshen omodebo. How can you argue against Rabbi Yehuda something he doesn't even agree with? Did not. It says in the Mishnah shein chatat zibur meta. Rabbi Yehuda omer tamut. Rabbi Yehuda says that actually no, the korbanot of the community and the individual are the same. If a chatat becomes obsolete, it is left to die. Vehu motivlan and he will answer. Zol onidvat yachidi. Right? That, uh, that he'll say, no, it's, it's Nidvat Yechid. What do you mean it's a communal korban? Each individual gives him a chatzit shekel. So we look at it as belonging to each individual. And therefore, the Kohanim really own it. And therefore, it's a problem. So even though he's saying, he's not sinning, really, it sounds like Rabbi Yehuda is recommending that they not give it. He's kind of supporting the, uh, uh, the, the Kohanim, but, uh, you know, and their drasha that they really shouldn't give it, but it, we won't hold it against them if they give it. Right? So then it says, And the rabbis answer, Right? So once it says, uh, once the Kohen gives it to the community, the Machzit shekel, it gets subsumed under the communal funds, and we don't look at it as an individual ownership anymore. And that's why the Kohanim are allowed to give, or obligated to give the Machzit shekel because it just gets melted into everyone else's Shkalim. It's not his own personal ownership of the Korban, even though Rabbi Yehuda seemingly is sympathetic to that view. And then it says, so it says anybody who was counted in the census which is really the census that was for going out to war right which was uh, from 20 years and up right that was <laughs> One says it says kol haover, meaning anybody who passed through yamsuf has to give, meaning everybody, right? That means everybody, oh. right? Okay. Vecharana amar. The other one said that's like we have uh, we have uh, in um, uh, in Bavli. Sometimes it'll say chad amar this and chad amar this. It says charana means oh, the the other one, right? Chad means the other one. Says kol davar al pikudaya iten. Anybody who was in the census for the army gives. So manda amar kol davar biyamayiten misayel Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. So the one who says that anybody who passed through the Yamsuf has to give. That's like Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says that everyone, including Kohanim, have to give. But manda amar kol davar al pikudaya iten. But the one who says no, anybody who was in the census that was connected to going out to the to the army, right? Basically, the ones that were the Kohanim and Levim were not included in that census. They had a separate census, right? Because they wouldn't be part of the army. So therefore, Misael Ben Bukhri, that supports Ben Bukhri, who said, listen, it's not a sin for the Kohen to give um, a Machatita uh, Shekel, but it's not recommended because there is a diff- there's a problem with the Kohanim participating in Machatita Shekel. And of course, the Kohanim really like that idea because anytime you're giving uh, people a tax break, they're not going to complain. Yeah.